Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, it's a small room, and I have a projection voice, so I won't use the microphone this morning. Um, it's my great pleasure. Can we fix whoever's talking? I, Mike is working on it on the other end. That's not on my end. That's on the recording end. Whomever's listening, can you please turn your mic off? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Thanks. Um, voices from the sky are a little too much after snow this morning. Uh, so um, it's growing a great pleasure to, um, to introduce Susan Edwards this morning. Anyone who's known Susan for more than five minutes knows that she does not value uh, long-windedness, and this morning is no exception. Um, Susan um, and Bill started their life down in UNC Chapel Hill and came up here to DHMC to do residency, and then Susan, her fellowship in gastroenterology. Um, anyone who also knows Susan for more than five minutes also knows that what she does value what she lacks in verbosity, she does value in patient care, compassion, um, and really, I think in this day and age, more than anybody else, still relishes seeing patients. So I personally am very thrilled that she's here still seeing patients um, with her high level of care. We're looking forward to hearing from her this morning. It's not surprisingly, Susan has an endoscopy at 9 o'clock this morning. <laughs> so we will finish on time. Susan? Thanks, Leslie. And I guess these are the people who actually read their email and knew which room to come to this morning. Um, so um, I have an hour to justify all the things I tell people about reflux now. So I hope I accomplish this. So GE reflux is a normal event. Um, and it's caused by transient relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. And the lower esophageal sphincter is a combination of factors. And it's thickened muscle fibers of the diaphragm where it attaches to the esophagus. The lower esophageal muscles are thickened here. And the last part of the LES is the shape of the stomach. You can see that it's a C-shape. And when the stomach gets full, it pushes this against the opposite wall. So all of these squeeze together to tighten the top of the stomach to keep stomach contents down. However, this LES will relax many times per day. And this relaxation is a brainstem reflex. And the vagus nerve innervates the diaphragm. I'm, I'm sorry, the phrenic nerve innervates the diaphragm and the vagus nerve innervates the stomach muscle and the esophageal muscles. Okay. So why do we do this? Why do we relax our LES? Oh, goodness. So this is going to, every two minutes I'm going to have to, thank you, Epic. <laughs> and it's not working. Can you pull it to the side? Know how. It's frozen. I do know how, Alan. I know how to do this well. <laughs> it's never not self-corrected. Oh, well, that's wonderful. That's. <laughs> is this going to be on every slide? So we can. Oh, there we go. Got it off the screen. Okay. Um, anyway. Um, so probably the relaxation of the LES functions as a gas relief valve. If it's a little bit of air that's swallowed, we don't hear anything. If it's a lot of air, we have a burp. 
this reflex relaxation is increased when our stomach is very full, is increased when you're standing upright or sitting upright, or you're lying on your right side. A high-fat meal does it. Caffeine and some drugs will make an increase, but only slightly. Well, the computer's frozen. I don't have a mouse. There you go. There we go. Okay. Well, thank you, Bill. <laughs> have a lot of meltdowns with working with PowerPoint. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, impedance is a technology that was developed about 15, 20 years ago, and it has taught us a lot, mostly that what we thought 30 years ago was incorrect about reflux. So impedance is a tube that has sensors, and it sits in the esophagus, and it can tell whether um, acid, non-acid, is coming up from the stomach or going down from a swallowing. So um, adult studies, healthy adults with impedance, show that there are 50 to 70 reflux events per day. Most occur in the two hours after a meal. They're fairly rare during sleep. Two-thirds of our reflux <clears throat> events have no acid, which means the juice is buffered by food or it's just a little air. Only a third have some acidity to them. And these um, reflux events are cleared very rapidly within three minutes from the esophagus. If you reflux during sleep, the clearance takes much longer. But again, night reflux is rare. There are no impedance studies in children without symptoms, but since symptoms of reflux are defined very loosely, we'll take this as uh, the best we have. So infants reflux twice as often, 142 times per day, mostly while awake. Only 15% of baby refluxes have acid. So babies will be refluxing every 10 minutes. So everything a baby does is associated within 10 minutes with a reflux event. Okay. This is a key reference that if you're really interested, you should download this. And it's the North American Pediatric GI Association and the European. And um, this is a position paper that was published in 2009. If anyone's interested, I can connect you to the website to download it for free if you go through biomedical libraries. And they did an exhaustive review of the literature and made evidence-based recommendations. Everything I say is in agreement with this document. I have added a few things because it has been five years since this was published, but I'm saying nothing that this document does not support. Okay, so definitions from this document. Reflux, gastroesophageal reflux, is the passage of stomach contents back up into the esophagus. It may come out the mouth or not. GERD is when this reflux causes troublesome symptoms or complications, a very loose definition. Regurgitation is effortless spitting when stomach contents come out the mouth. There's no retching or heaving. And it um, can be forceful in infants. Vomiting is reverse contractions of the stomach, retching, heaving, lots of force when you have the flu. 
And I put down rumination because this is sometimes confused with reflux. And this can only be diagnosed after around age 18 months when spitting no longer occurs. And this is effortless regurgitation. This is regurgitation of about a mouthful of stomach contents. And it's an uh, involuntary tick. And there's a little maneuver you make with your stomach that forces up a, a mouthful of food. They do it multiple times a day. And it can only happen when the stomach is full. So it's always in the first hour after eating. And it's a nervous tick. It um, uh, causes no harm at all. And it's diagnosed really by history. Okay. So um, GER is a normal common event that sometimes can cause harm or unpleasant symptoms. Now, uh, something happened around the mid-1970s. The first H2 blockers went on the market, and these were miracle drugs. For the first time, we could he heal ulcers. Before that, people had surgery to remove half their stomach to get rid of acid-producing cells. We could also heal esophagitis. Um, and before that, people had to take Maalox every couple of hours. And interesting, about the same time, pH probes were developed. And these were little tubes that you put down the nose, they sat in the distal esophagus, and they could measure uh, the pH of the esophageal contents. So together, we had a treatment, and we now had a way to diagnose the disease. Sort of interesting how this works. And diagnose it, we did. <laughs> uh, multiple studies were published correlating many troublesome symptoms with reflux, with acid reflux, because that's all we could measure back then. Now, there are papers um, showing reflux as triggers for all of these symptoms. And I'm going to talk a little about, about the early papers, the 70s or 80s, and the more recent papers and the, um, after the 2000s. So we'll go through all of these symptoms here. Okay. So. Uh, we'll start with esophagitis. There's very strong evidence that prolonged contact with acid, pepsin, and bile salts causes esophagitis. And this is a slide um, here. You can see these red streaks coming up. And that's what peptic esophagitis looks like in a milder version. The esophagus collapses between swallows, and these little grooves will hold acid, and so you get burns and streaks like this, and it looks like a burn. More severe esophagitis will be totally circumferential. And um, this is highly correlated with prolonged acid contact, um, and risk factors in children are those with esophageal dysmotility which is mostly our kids with repaired TE fistulas. And a lot of these kids, that distal part of the esophagus has poor motility. If they have a long gap, then the stomach gets pulled up into the chest a little bit, so they don't have their LES pressure is not very high, the anatomy is not correct, so their reflux events come up and they can't clear it. Okay. Um, we now use acid suppression for the first year in all infants with a repaired TEF, and it has dramatically improved their esophageal outcome. So that's been a really good thing. Um, children with neuromotor problems, cerebral palsy, um, also are in, can get erosive esophagitis. 
and it may be because they don't swallow as, as often as kids without neuromotor problems. It perhaps is that this brainstem reflex um, doesn't work as well in, in these kids. And this inflammation can lead to a stricture here, and you can see it's white, it looks like a scar, and the hole is very small. So acid suppression heals erosive esophagitis and prevents strictures. Excellent data. Okay. So, um, how often do we see erosive esophagitis? And I can look through adult studies, and adults who have a reason to go and undergo an upper endoscopy, so they had some symptom that made someone do an upper endoscopy, 15% had erosive esophagitis. I only found two studies in children over age 18 months who had no risk factors, and they had symptoms, and again, this was loosely defined, and 3 to 9% had erosive esophagitis. This has got to be the highest number it can be, because if you look at these studies carefully, the erosive esophagitis diagnosis can be made a little loosely. Some people used to call redness as erosive esophagitis. We know that that's really not a reliable sign. It has to be these sort of deep burns. So this is, a high, this is the highest rate it could be. Um, so there's this entity of histologic esophagitis, which the esophagus looks normal, but there are few increased inflammation cells on biopsy, and it's found in about 20% of people who undergo endoscopy. Um, Long-term studies have shown this rarely progresses to erosive esophagitis, as its significance is uncertain. And the NASPGAM position paper said, do not treat it. And so I actually do not treat this anymore. Okay. So who gets esophagitis? We just talked about abnormal esophageal motility, delayed gastric emptying, getting your stomach too distended, um, hydrohernias, low LES tone. Okay. So, and you would think, are there any symptoms that would tell us who has erosive esophagitis? And sort of common sense things, heartburn, regurgitation, sour burps. However, large-scale studies, surveys of adults and teens in the Western world shows that 10 to 20% of healthy people have heartburn or sour taste at least weekly. Half of us have it at least twice a month. This is a slightly busy slide, but it's a, a survey by um, 16 pediatric practices in the Chicago area, and it, parents or children were asked if they had burning in their chest, if it hurt to swallow, or they had stomach pain. And so the rate varied from heartburn from 2 to about 6%, hurting to swallow 2 to 4%. And the middle slides are how many kids get stomach aches, so lots of them, as we know. So. Um, millions of people have heartburn and sour burp, okay? And there really are no clinical symptoms that separate people with erosive esophagitis from those without. We don't really have anything to guide us, okay? Um, the question mark is, is me. Um, vomiting blood increase the chances. Um, dysphagia, um, food sticking, which could be some dysmotility, or it could be a scar or heartburn that wakes you from sleep, and that's actually quite rare. And we know that reflux during sleep is rare, 
but it's not cleared rapidly. So you get that prolonged acid contact with night reflux. So those are the indications that I tend to use, but those are my personal ones. Yes, it could be how many, how much endoscopy you want to do too. So <laughs> that's a reason for a lot of people I know. So um, there is a term called INGUR that adults use, which means non-erosive um, reflux symptoms, um, things that bother you, and it's pretty. It's um, considered to be a varying of irritable bowel. It's a sensitive esophagus. People with this don't reflux any more than normal. They don't have inflammation. They just perceive pain. And about 75% will have some symptomatic relief with acid suppression. Okay. So um, who needs endoscopy? High-risk people. And also people who do not improve with acid suppression. And mostly we're looking for other disorders. So if you have dysphagia, chest pain that doesn't get better with a trial of acid suppression, or if you can't wean off acid suppression. And the two things we look for in pediatrics, one is eosinophilic esophagitis, which is um, we see much more than erosive esophagitis. This is a condition that did not exist 30 years ago. And it has a very characteristic look to it. There are these grooves that look like cobblestoning, which you can see here. And this is also a ringed esophagus. This is how cat's esophaguses look like this. So it's a cat esophagus. And if you do a biopsy, there will be multiple eosinophils, 10 to 20 or higher, um, more per high-powered field. And we actually don't know what causes EOE, but since it is a new disease, it's got to be environmental. About 30% this will get dramatically better with acid suppression. So this is another reason to use acid suppression. 70% require um, um, steroid treatment or an elemental formula will sometimes work. Um, there are a group that it's related to food allergies. We have, since this is a T cell response, um, RAS testing is not beneficial and it's multiple food allergies, so we don't have a good way to figure out the triggers. Celiac can, prevent, can present as some dyspepsia symptoms that don't get better with acid suppression, and adults are looking for cancer. Okay. So I spent the early years of my career convinced that if I aggressively treated esophagitis, I was going to prevent esophageal cancer in middle age. And I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> so this is a slide showing uh, the, the increase in the rate of adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. This is cancer near the GE junction. This cancer has increased 500% in the past 30 years. And if you can notice, the years that started to going up, going up were right when H2 blockers and PPIs came on the market right around the 70s when we got them. Squamous cell carcinoma, which is higher in the esophagus, that rate has gone down. This is a slide. The black going up is uh, prescriptions for PPIs over time. The uh, pink is a diagnosis of GERD by a doctor, and the green is H2 blocker um, prescriptions. And I thought this curve looked an awful lot like the adenocarcinoma curve, food for thought. Okay, 
So risk factors for esophageal adenocarcinoma have an aberrant esophagus. This is when there's replacement of the normal squamous epithelium with columnar epithelium, which is resistant to acid damage. Smoking, obesity, um, erosive esophagitis, lack of H. pylori infection, and all of the more recent studies list PPI use. Is this because these are people had worse heartburn, or does PP, using a PPI change acid reflux into non-acid reflux, which is more carcinogenic? Does acid have nothing to do with this, and they share other risk factors, such as obesity? We don't know. Okay. Um, so the picture on the left shows Barrett's esophagus. And the normal esophagus is fairly whitish, paler, and Barrett's is pinker. The stomach is pinker. And the arrows here show uh, early cancer occurring in a Barrett's. Most people with Barrett's are not, don't actually get esophageal cancer. So prevention of esophageal adenocarcinoma. Um, small studies have shown some benefit with acid suppression or fundiplication, but very large randomized studies, mostly national VA studies, have shown no benefit at all from either fundiplication or acid suppression. 40% of adults um, with Barrett's or adenocarcinoma have no prior symptoms to suggest any kind of excess heartburn. And the bottom slide is we do not know what um, PPI used for children and infants is going to do to the rate of adenocarcinoma. Treating early could make it go down or it could make it go up. We don't know. So going on to other symptoms, there are papers saying bad breath is caused by reflux, which made absolutely no sense to me. So I went to my favorite source, UpToDate. And according to UpToDate, okay, um, 15 to 30% of people have bad breath. A lot of people think they have bad breath and don't actually have it. Um, the mouth is the source in 80 to 90%. And you are colonized with bacteria that break down proteins and food, saliva, cells, and they produce sulfur. And there's a sulfur smell to it. 5 to 8% come from the nose, which is a cheesy smell. And I've been asking people when they tell me about bad breath, and they actually know it's cheese or sulfur. So um, um, tonsils, 3%, GI tract, zero. Now, you have more bacterial pr um, production of sulfur in your mouth if the pH is alkaline or neutral. So you actually need more acid there. So this is absolutely no sense that bad breath has anything to do with reflux. Dental erosions. Again, the early studies, when you went to look at how they did them, the dentist would say, do you have heartburn? And they said that people who said they had heartburn had more dental erosions than those who didn't. Past 10 years, there have been studies where they had people who had erosive esophagitis, they had a placebo group who had had an endoscopy without erosive esophagitis, no correlation with dental erosions, a big correlation with eating habits. So this is another thing that once we got placebo control studies, no um, connection between erosions and reflux. Um, multiple respiratory problems have been um, linked to um, reflux. 20% um, of adults who um, consult an ENT doctor do so 
because of a change in voice quality. And there were um, many ENT studies published 30 years ago showing that if you put these people on PPIs, a lot of them got better. They also did a studies where, with animals. They got a cat and put stomach acid directly on the cat's esophagus. The cat's voice got hoarse. They said, this must be what's happening to people. Okay. Um, and then, in the past 10 years, we've now had placebo control studies that there's no difference in improvement in voice quality between those who get a PPI and those a placebo or watchful waiting. So again, Cochrane supports this. Okay. Cochrane review from 2010. Um, these are the latest Cochrane's ones. I don't have any more recent, but more recent studies don't change what they say. So um, thick and feeds inconsistent study results for chronic cough, and. This is probably because there is a group of kids who microaspirate, have a little trouble with airway protection, and they at least clinically seem to do better with thickened feeds. Um, again, PPI is not effective, should not be used. Um, um, there's a large placebo effect in chronic coughs. It would require a huge study, which has not been done. So early studies, no placebo. Older studies, placebo, no benefit. So recurrent pneumonia, going through this list. This is a um, best study I found. Um, 238 children with recurrent pneumonia, and they looked at underlying cause. And aspiration during swallowing was the most common. And reflux was thought to be a factor in only 5%. So asthma and reflux. We know that if you put acid in the esophagus, no effect on pulmonary function in healthy adults may exacerbate airway symptoms in asthmatics. Um, there is some excess reflux in children with asthma, especially during an attack. And giving PPI therapy has mixed results. Newer studies with placebo control are showing no benefit. Older studies, less placebo controlled, had benefit. Even the older studies showed that those who seemed to benefit were those who had nighttime symptoms. Okay. Um, no benefit in wheezy infants. So the data for reflux and asthma is possibly could help some with nighttime symptoms, but not the vast majority. Okay. So feeding issues related to reflux. Um, <coughs> Now, um, there have been multiple small studies where parents, where babies were given acid suppression. Both parents and doctors knew that, and 80% said their babies got better. There have been five very large random control studies um, comparing placebo to um, PPIs. All five, the babies on placebo did better probably because PPIs have some side effects. So no randomized control study has shown any benefit. And if you think about it, only 15% um, of baby reflux is acidic. It doesn't make much sense. And we never see esophagitis in normal babies. There are isolated rare reports of erosive esophagitis 
and infants, and they're mostly, I had one baby with a t repaired TE fistula, who once we did a fundification, he had a, a short esophagus, a real bad hiatal hernia, did feed better. I've had three congenital hiatal hernia babies who um, vomited brown blood, and that's how we found it. And they all fed well and were happy and content, non-controlled, but so, um, infant fussiness. Um, so, just to remember, um, babies um, cry averages six hours a day up to eight hours a day. Um, as hopefully all of you know, the fussing peaks at about six weeks. And there's been um, multiple studies showing no correlation with acid reflux or any reflux at all with irritability. And the double-blinded study showed no benefit. In fact, placebo did better. Okay. So my guest speaker is going to talk now. <laughs> well, <clears throat> is this working okay? Uh, this is a whole hour talk. Susan said I had five minutes. So there are basically three neonatal issues related to reflux, apnea, feeding intolerance and growth, and chronic lung disease. So the first issue, does reflux cause apnea? Well, remember Susan said that the pH probe was developed in the early 70s, and this is a seminal paper that got everyone in neonatology thinking about reflux treatment being the right approach to apnea. This is showing a pH probe with a um, drop in pH, following the drop in pH, a 10-second apnea episode. However, if you look at large-scale studies, looking, this is just one representative study, looking at the number of reflux episodes for 12 hours and the number of apneic events, there's no correlation. And in fact, if you look at the instance of cardiorespiratory events being preceded, by GE reflux for apnea, desaturations, and bradycardia, uh, on average 2.7%. So only 3% of the episodes are related. And given what Susan told you about the number of reflux episodes, 3% being associated with apnea probably is just random chance. So interestingly, the second question is, can apnea cause reflux? Which is cart and which is horse? This is a, a multi-channel recording that shows hypoxia-induced apnea showing a drop in the lower esophageal sphincter tone following the apnea. And here's a clinical study uh, looking at a uh, number of patients, the means and interquartile range for lower esophageal sphincter tone. And for here you see the onset of apnea and the drop in lower esophageal sphincter tone. So we may have it backwards. Apnea causes reflux rather than reflux causes apnea. My favorite, one of my favorite studies is looking at a, this is a crossover trial where the first, there were uh, three study groups, a control, metoclopramide, and ranitidine. Ranitidine and metoclopramide were combined because they were, the results were no different. So this was a randomized crossover you start with one treatment, cross over to placebo, and then cross over to the treatment or the reverse, placebo, treatment, placebo. 
Okay. So when you combine all the drug periods with the placebo periods for the instance of bradycardia, it actually is higher during the drug treatment periods. But when you do the analysis of which of the three components uh, over time, obviously there's a drop-off over time in the instance of the, of the uh, bradycardic episodes. Message, maturate, you can do anything in a preterm baby and if they mature out of it, you'll think you did something that was worthwhile. <laughs> Feeding intolerance. Don't have time to go into detail about this, but there is some evidence that we could affect feeding intolerance by some things uh, like the least refluxes when you're either prone or left lying. Um, the best gastric emptying is when you're right-sided. So some people have advocated potentially putting on the right side for 20 minutes after a feed and then on the left side afterwards to prevent the reflux. In the most severe cases, and these do occur, continuous drip or small feeds or transpyloric feeds may get you past that maturational issue until they no longer have the reflux. And of course, there's the issue given that back to sleep is sort of uh, supine is the worst reflux versus the prone or left lying being the least. These have to be balanced. And the nursery on monitoring potentially can do that. G reflux and chronic lung disease. Basically, the bottom line is that there's really no strong evidence of a correlation between GE reflux and BPD or chronic lung disease. Um, proof in, uh, to be completely transparent, there is one study of nine infants um, where nurses were asked for correlating, put, punching a button for symptoms, and this was impedance recording. They found a slight relationship between nursing association of symptoms and the um, uh, clearance time of acid that made it all the way up to the pharynx. So, you know, there is perhaps a tiny amount of evidence. More important in neonates, there's evidence for harm. Gastric acid is important in uh, digestion as well as immune defense. Decreased stomach acid affects the quantity and type of bacteria in the GI tract. This is only one of uh, now of several representative trials looking at correlation with NEC, um, and just pay attention to this, H2 blockers, uh, odds ratio 1.7 <coughs> with a p-value of 0.0001. So highly correlated risk uh, between acid suppression and risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. Nosocomial sepsis also has been linked to it. Um, however, neonatologists don't seem to understand this, because if you look at uh, extreme low birth weight babies, less than 1,000 grams, who stay in the nursery at up to 42 weeks corrected age, uh, about half of them are discharged on, uh, on uh, antacid uh, medication. And I'll leave with this one. This is actually the, by specialty, what people actually believe is very likely to be related. Neonatology is the greens, GI is the orange, pulmonology is the black. I'll let you look at the slide while Susan comes back. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. 
Spitty babies. Um, so um, um, spitting up is very, very common. It's effortless. Where there's no retching, no warning. It can be forceful. It can be a small amount, a large amount, a few times a day, 30 times a day. Some babies don't like it. Some could care less. It is um, uh, very common. 75% of four-month-olds spit at least daily. And it goes down. There's usually a huge drop-off around six to seven months. 12-month-olds, 10% still spit, and it's gone by age 18 months. It's partly a combination of the big frequency and reflux and also some stomach coordination differences that make babies spit up. Okay. So if you wanted to treat a spitty baby, um, what would you select? What can we offer parents? Um, metoclopramide is the only prokinetic drug that's available in our country. It increases the rate of gastric emptying slightly. There's no study that's shown any clinically significant improvement in spitting with metoclopramide. 50% of people who take metoclopramide have side effects, with irritability being the most common. And one in a thousand will have a dystonic reaction, most of which are reversible, but not every single one. 5% um, of babies will have a dramatic improvement on a predigested formula like alimentum or nutramogen. It may be that these babies actually truly have a, a protein allergy. Um, predigested formulas empty from the stomach a bit faster, so more stays down before it comes up. But so does breast milk empty quite rapidly. Um, thickened, uh, oh, this is a slide that um, acid suppression. As we said, there is no benefit in spitting from acid suppression in any placebo study. And this is the slide I want everyone to remember, if they remember nothing else, is this is, um, this is uh, volunteers um, who were, take, were given a PPI, and you can see that their number of reflux events, about you know, 210 a day, common. And this study, uh, this one's about half, okay, about half um, were acid. When they started taking a PPI, they reflexed just as much there's a, it actually refluxed a little bit more, but it's not clinically significant, but the percentage of acid went down. Um, several other studies have shown this. They may tweak it and try to say the number went down, but no study has shown a significant difference in the number of reflux events. And it makes no physiologic sense that acid suppression should decrease this, this um, brainstem reflux. Okay. So it shouldn't help spitty babies, and it doesn't. Um, so thickened feeds, and this is the ratio of tablespoon per two ounces of milk, which will make it pretty thick. I often start with a tablespoon per four ounces. It does increase the calories, and it does decrease the volume of reflux that comes out the mouth. It's like Heinz ketchup, it's just thick, more stays, it's too hard to get out the mouth. Um, and no evidence that it decreases the frequency of reflux. Okay. Positioning. Um, as Bill said, least reflux is lying on your belly or the left side down. We cannot do that um, because of the SIDS recommendations. Elevating the head is of no benefit 
Sitting in the car seat makes you reflux more. Conclusion, don't even mention position. It makes no difference whatsoever. <laughs> um, so fundiplications do stop reflux. And this is the only thing that actually um, does. And what the surgeon does is takes the top of the stomach and wraps it around the esophagus. So it's tighter. It can't relax as easily. It can't relax to let things out of the stomach. It also doesn't relax quite as well to let things down in the stomach. So um, outcomes from a fundiplication uh, vary greatly. And they're less beneficial for those with neuromotor disorders and less beneficial for those with non-esophageal symptoms. This is a very busy slide that I put together. Um, this is outcomes from 15 um, centers who did fundiplications. Some of the outcomes were done by a male survey. Others were done when they came to clinic. In general, those whose outcomes were based on surveys are better than those who came to clinic, and they vary greatly. For example, recurrent GERD, whatever they mean by that, uh, we went from 0 to 40 percent. Um, dysphagia went from 0 to 50 percent. So quite variability. This is the best study that I've seen on follow-up of fundiplications. It was done in Houston, and they did 198 fundiplications between 1996 and 1999. Their follow-up was at their two-month post-op visit, and it was 89 percent. So really good follow-up. 75% of their patients had underlying medical conditions, CP, respiratory problems. Only 23% had endoscopy and 19% had pH probes. This was prior to impedance. So most of these children had no evidence that reflux was causing their problems. The surgeon just said it must be reflux, just guessed. Um, and then what was the outcome? These are symptoms pre and post in children without underlying medical problems. And you can see that a lot of them had symptoms post-op. You can sort of go through the list. I'm always being asked about pneumonia. And pre-op, 22%. Post-op, 20%. OK? So it, it's, it's not that great. I mean, the surgeons and the editor said, this, we need a better surgery. The surgery, and these are skilled pediatric surgeons with a high volume. And children with medical problems, same kinds of outcome. Okay. Especially pneumonia, 52% pre-op, 39% post-op. Um, the one thing that does increase post-op is uh, dumping and retching. Um, so, okay. Another study, 35 children with neuromotor impairment um, before and after Nissen's, and you can see that a lot of them you know, still have symptoms post-surgery. Okay. So is there any way to predict which of these children are going to benefit from a fund application? And this is a study from Boston Children's 2010, and they had that impedance on 34 children who had a fund application. They had it because of vomiting or respiratory symptoms. They were very vague about what they actually had. They said that 65% got better, but they didn't say a little better or a lot better. Um, and impedance studies did not predict one bit who would get better. 
So actually the people in Houston did what we all have to do, you just guess, just flip a coin. Ask the mother what she wants, okay? <laughs> so we have no way to know if doing a fund application for anything other than erosive esophagitis is going to help you. So I think we just need to be careful what we promise parents when we talk about fund applications. We can just be honest with them, okay? Um, so uh, other treatments are lifestyle, and this is mostly for adults from an article in the New England Journal about six years ago. And it's pretty simple. Don't smoke, don't drink too much, and don't overeat. And a lot of other good things happen, too, when you do those things. <laughs> so, okay. um, so what, what can tests tell us? Okay. So endoscopy can tell us if you have esophagitis. It can tell us if you have EOE or celiac or for an adult cancer. Impedance, uh, we really, there's no role, I think, for pH probes at all anymore, okay? And uh, impedance can tell you if you have more or less reflux than normal and possibly correlate symptoms. I think that's probably impossible in an infant unless you have someone who's meticulous it will push the button the immediate, immediately when the symptom occurred because infants reflux so frequently. Upper GI only checks for anatomy, which kids who have forceful vomiting need, looking for malrotations. Um, Lipid-laden macrophages. I was taught that if you had lipid-laden macrophages in your lung fluid, alveolar fluid, you were aspirating and that correlated with reflux. Um, however, there have been studies now in both children and adults where they take a, adults who have erosive esophagitis and chronic respiratory symptoms and they look for lipid-laden macrophages. They take adults who've had no esophagitis, had an endoscopy for another reason, lipid-laden macrophages, no difference. Same thing with children. Um, no correlation between healthy controls and those with chronic respiratory symptoms. And also, finding the macrophages has no correlation with whether you're going to improve with a fund application or not. So it's another test that probably has no benefit in, predicting, in helping with therapy. So medication trials, this is done um, a lot in adults. And let's say you have some symptom that you want to treat with with acid suppression. And my bias is the only thing we really should be treating based on the data I've given you is heartburn. Um, so you can treat for four weeks, and if they get better, continue the treatment for eight weeks, which will heal pretty, pretty much all esophagitis and back in the era when we had ulcers, which we don't have many in children at all. And then you have to wean off. H2 blockers are preferred because the acid suppression is not as high and you can wean off faster. The problem with H2 blockers is you have to dose it twice a day and you do get tachyphylaxis. If you stay on it long term, you, you have to increase the um, dose and you don't with PPIs. So 30% of people who have some increased heartburn they want to treat can wean off and, and have no more symptoms. A lot of people who have intermittent heartburn can just take an H2 blocker for symptom relief. You're going to go out, have a big meal and drink, and get to bed late, take a, a Zantac before you go. Okay. Um, 
Okay. So um, part of this is you want to use acid suppression as little as possible. And this is like Bill said, um, the NEC risk, you increase bacteria in the stomach and small intestine. Multiple studies have shown increased risk of community-acquired pneumonia, taking um, acid suppression, a big risk factor for, take for C. diff. Um, and in older adults, increased risk of hip fracture. No studies in children. Okay. Whoops. So this is how PPIs work. Um, the um, G cells here make gastrin, which a feedback loop stimulates parietal cells to secrete acid. So if you um, block this is what PPIs do. They block the secretion by parietal cells. So the feedback loop is you get very high gastrin levels when you take a P, especially a PPI. The higher the acid suppression, the higher the gastrin levels. And this is another study to remember. And this is from Denmark. And they got 100 and I think or 200 healthy people who had no, said they never had heartburn or regurgitation. And they treated them for 12 weeks. The people in the pink had a placebo. Every day they had to say, did you have heartburn or a sour taste? And once these people started thinking about it, they found they actually did have some of these symptoms, which again says how common they are. The second group in blue were treated with a PPI for eight weeks, and then they abruptly stopped. And 22% of them had a surge in heartburn and sour taste. It's this high gastrin you know, this huge surge, okay? And you, if you use a PPI, even for eight weeks, you have to taper off. You can't stop abruptly. And I couldn't find how long this gastrin stays elevated, but my clinical, what I'm doing now clinically is I'm tapering off over three to four months, you know, to be able to get some people off PPIs. That would actually be a good study to look at how long gastrin stay elevated with PPI use. The, a great drug. Everyone has heartburn, or most of us do, and once you start taking it, you can't come off of it. Um, so PPIs do have side effects, 14% rate, um, headache, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, each 2 to 7%. Um, so these are my recommendations, not the studies, that um, um, for general pediatricians is, back when I did a lot of this, my two-week visit talked about what your baby's going to do that's going to be hard, difficult. We talked about infant temperament, crying, fussy spells at night, baby spitting, talked about how you're going to cope with this. And um, try to let parents know these are normal baby behaviors, you know, and that they're going to start soon, and they're going to you know, peak at certain ages and then get better. Um, never use the term GERD. Uh, about two months ago, pediatrics had an article that if the doctor said GERD, the parents thought it had to be treated. I asked parents, were your other children spitty? Oh, no, they had GERD. <laughs> um, only cure for spitty babies is time, and I'm always trying to focus more on what goes in than what comes out. You know, you can't really stop the spittings. We've got to make sure you feed them enough that they grow. Um, and then they look at me and stare at me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so again, I'm trying to
tell you that what I'm telling you is is what we should be doing. This was published by Dan, European and North American PDGI group, um, looking at the FDA statement from 2012. As a result of our analysis and review, the authors agree with the FDA advisory members that PBI should not be administered to treat the symptoms of GERD in the otherwise whoops, healthy infant without the evidence of acid-induced disease. Okay, So this is what we're fighting. These are ads in the PDGI journals, these really nasty monsters attacking your child. And here is Prevacid cuddling your baby. <laughs> uh, I actually looked through the past year, and there are none of these ads in the past year. But they were all over the place four and five years ago. Um, and then what we really have to fight is Wikipedia. And bad breath, um, um, hiccuping. You know, all babies hiccup the first four months. Uh, they get ear infections are due to reflux, sinus congestion, can't burp. Okay, and in fact, as you notice, that patting on the back does not increase reflux. So patting on the back has nothing to do with burping. <laughs> so, um, and if you burp for ten minutes, oh, you just got to pat at least for ten minutes, and you get a burp. Okay. Um, and w there is some improvement. Last time we did this about five years ago. Um, the list was longer. It had constipation and diarrhea, but at least Wikipedia has removed those from the symptoms due to GERD. All right, that's it. Okay. Two questions, Susan? Sure. All right. Questions? Um, bulimia? Um, does bulimia? I actually don't know the I don't know the answer to that without looking it up. I don't know. I would guess we know that uh, well rumination does not, but that's um, right after meals when food is buffered acid. I don't know. I'll say I don't know the answer. If it comes up very quickly, it's it's the amount of time that you have acid contact with the esophagus, and if it's vomiting, you know, it's very quick. So I don't know the answer to it. Other question, Ms. Susan? Okay. Um, I find that parents feel this pressure to hold their babies for a certain amount of time before they put them down to go to sleep because they're worried that they're going to have reflux and put them down. And I tell them, this is sort of, I've sort of made it up, and I want to make sure that's true. Well, that works well. Um, <laughs> any, any movement? Because I wasn't able to find, I don't know if you have any evidence to show that, am I feeling any movement of the baby, like repositioning them? Anytime they move and swarm around, they might have these reflux events happen more frequently. And so that's why they feel like any movement, even if the baby had been laying and then got lifted, they might throw up where they're lifted and then they're laying. Is there any, like, there's no, there's why no, do parents feel that way? When I started, spitting up was normal. No one ever came to the doctor because of spitting. It was a normal baby event. It's like going to the physical therapist because your one-month-old doesn't walk. <laughs> so, and I think, and the other advice is, there's no reason to send spitty babies to a GI doctor, okay? A general pediatrician can take care of fussy, spitty babies better. Um, 
The and I think it's this pH probe. It's having an acid medicine in pH probes that started us down this pathway, which the new data I think was a false pathway. I think the only thing that we really should be using acid suppression for is heartburn regurgitation. There's almost maybe the night asthma person, but all this data I've given you is shifting. And the Institute of Medicine chose PPI use as their first topic of inappropriate medical top to try and educate. I had to do the MOC cycle the first time it came out, right when we were learning EPIC. Um, in my open book test, it was four articles, and they were very focused on do not use acid suppression in children. So I'm again, there's there's out there, but. So I've never, I don't think I've ever given Great. a baby acid suppression, thanks to you. Great. Um, but do you have any, any better, or is it, I mean, I say all the things that you say, yeah. but they're still, I, this is like really, I don't know how other general pediatricians feel. We're, we're fighting. Like moving the baby around, and I just want to know why that happens. You know, it, it's just one of these things that, that I found is, if I say I'm really worried about this rate of esophageal cancer, I have no more problems. And I am. I'm actually very worried about this data, what we're doing, you know. Um, and if you just, I think this is going to get better. You know, you, you're just nice. It's not going to get better until six months. And we just, you check off one more day. I got through one more day. That's how I live with my first child. <laughs> one more day. One last question, over time compared to the number of diagnoses because when I trained, even a little bit before you, sitting was normal and as gastroenterologists and pediatrics became more prominent, we had somebody to refer frustrated mothers to and I know the PPIs and the medicines and the probes were there, but I just wonder if having a specialty I agree with you completely, which is why I think no baby, there's there, no PDGI person can do as good a job with a fussy, spitty baby. You should not refer them. You, you should refer them if, um, uh, you know, perhaps the blood in the stool or vomiting blood or a baby vomiting past a year, you know, kind of thing. But the typical spitty baby. Um, and, you know, there's something out there because I'm meeting with less resistance to the people who get to me. A lot of them have already been put on acid suppression, all these things, and they're not getting better. And then when we suggest coming off, they're happy. They say, well, I didn't want these drugs anyway. Cause they... So there's something on the Internet now that parents are getting the message that these drugs are not totally safe. And 15 years ago, you know, parents were, were very mad at me if I suggested not treating. You know, there was a great deal of resistance to not treating. All right, let's get Susan off to endoscopy okay. on time. Thank you, everybody. Uh,